0: Welcome to the 50th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is how to become an attractive buyer or seller in a hot M&A market. A conversation with Rich Gill, senior partner of Wealth Partners Capital Group. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other podcast resources. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. This episode represents a milestone for the series. It's our 50th episode, and it's a genuine hallmark for sure. Especially since we started this journey with a goal of doing just 10 or 12 episodes focused on answering the top questions we received from advisors who were curious about the space. But like peeling back an onion, we continued to uncover more topics to explore, more guests with valuable experience to share. And most importantly, advisors and industry thought leaders who told us that this podcast became their go to resource for information related to the independent space and other options within an ever evolving landscape. So, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you all for listening and continue to welcome your comments, questions, and input on what you'd like to learn more about. In this episode, We take a close look at one of the hottest topics in wealth management today mergers and acquisitions. Consider this. Fidelity Clearing and Custody Solutions reported that from January through August of twenty nineteen there were eighty six RIA transactions representing the movement of ninety three and a half billion in assets and seven independent broker dealer transactions representing almost $400 billion in assets. And we've seen year-to-year growth in both transactions and assets, with quality buyers vying for strong sellers and new players emerging, sitting on both sides of the table every day. On the acquisition side of the table, Wealth Partners Capital Group is perhaps a less well-known name in the space, but definitely becoming one of the most prominent having executed transactions totaling over $80 in client assets since inception and representing 50 acquisitions. So I'm really excited to have the senior partner from the firm, Rich Gill, join me on the show to talk about the firm's unique focus and process, to share his take on M&A momentum and advice on how to position a firm as an attractive buyer or seller. So let's jump right in. Rich, I'm so excited to have you join me on today's episode and thank you so, so much for doing it.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Mindy. I couldn't be happier to be here and, and to be doing a session with you.
0: Great. Lots to talk about, so we're gonna, I'm going to jump in right now. So tell us a little bit, Rich, if you would, about your background prior to Wealth Partners Capital Group.
1: Sure. Uh, to go way back I started my career in banking and private equity. Many, many years ago, I worked at Schwab in their strategy and corporate development group, which is how I learned what an RIA was. So I walked into this industry without knowing a lot about it, and I got completely fascinated way back when I was working at Silver Lake Partners, which owned the Ameritrade business, got fascinated with it, went to work at Schwab, and was there for about three years. Then I joined what at the time was a very small startup being run out of its founder's apartment in New York, which became Focus Financial Partners. I was there for eight years and then joined AMG Wealth Partners before finally starting my own firm with my two co-founders, which is Wealth Partners Capital Group, where I am today.
0: We know, just I know from working with advisors, that people make choices to leave a firm and go elsewhere. There are usually pushes and pulls, things that may be frustrating them, pushing them to leave, and the enthusiasm or pull of going somewhere else. So what were the pushes and pulls that drove you to leave first Focus Financial and then AMG?
1: Well, both of those firms were great experiences, so I wouldn't say the, the pushes were overwhelming. With Focus, I in many ways professionally grew up there. I think I had an eight to nine year stint at Focus and watched it grow up, thought I had some different ideas about how to invest in the business. Focus was such a successful early investor in RIAs and it had such a disciplined model. I had some different ideas about how I thought an investment in a wealth management firm could be made, how there could be a more balance of control with the principals, And those sorts of things started pulling me away a little bit and I found AMG Wealth Partners, which at the time was you know, investing in some of the largest RIAs in the country. And it, you know from my perspective in a very different structure, offering both minority and majority investment models, which is very different than the traditional focus one.
0: Right. So talk to me a little bit, if you would, about Wealth Partners Capital Group or WPCG, or I think I'm going to just call it Wealth Partners Group, if that's okay (laughs) with you.
1: That works great. That's what we do too.
0: (laughs) Okay, good. So it seems to me that it was born just at the right time because the M&A market has been incredibly hot. So I guess let's start with what is Wealth Partners Group and what was the gap in the landscape you were looking to solve for when you launched the firm?
1: Yeah. So Wealth Partners Group, which was uh, founded by myself and my partners, John Copeland and Sean Bresnan, was in our minds a a different model than those out there. So what it is, first of all, is we are minority, non-control investors in three different firms. And those firms are EP Wealth Advisors MAI Capital, and Forbes Family Trust. Now, both of the words that I use there are are important in terms of Wealth Partners identity. Minority investors, because for all of our firms, the founders are still very much in control of the destiny of the firm. And non-control, because, well, like any investor, we have some protections. We like to think we're really in this together in terms of building things in terms of building a great wealth management franchise with our partners. So if you look at what we were trying to fill, when I take a step back and look at the industry, you know, I feel like I was part of an early wave led by Focus, but there were others where people really came in and there was a financial approach to investing in the RIA world. There hadn't been one before. Historically, it was maybe a local bank or an internal succession deal. Focus and other institutional investors came in and said, hey, this is a great business. We are going to be institutional quality financial buyers of RIA firms. We like to think Wealth Partners is on the forefront of something else, which is when we're making acquisitions through one of our three partners, we're really leading with culture. This is a standalone. R- the, each of these three firms are standalone RIA firms. They're run by founders. They have a long growth trajectory. They have terrific people. And we think that that appeals to some of the talent in the industry that might be underutilized. There are now just in the way the industry has evolved. There are so many different players willing and able to give a check, but there are so many fewer that are willing to find you a great place to work a seat where you can build value over a 10 or 20-year career time frame. And that's what we feel like we've done really differently as part of this almost second wave of of M&A that's washing through the industry.
0: So let me unpack a couple of things that you said. First of all, you said earlier that you began to have some different ideas about investment approach and balance of control. And that may have been what drove you to leave Focus and go to AMG and then eventually found Wealth Partners Group. So tell us just in your words, what are the key differences between a Focus investment in an RIA firm, for example, and a Wealth Partners Group investment in an RIA firm?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I would say a key difference is when Focus buys a firm, on the one hand, nothing changes. That firm stays there and the name stays on the door. But on the other hand, that firm has really had its capital event. They're not building with Focus towards something in the future. And because of that, it seems, at least to me, more of a liquidity solution than a growth partnership. What we are doing at Wealth Partners that we see is so different and exciting is when you look at EP or MAI or Forbes, you have management teams who are going to be in this business for 10 or 20 years, and you have firms that are growing at 40 or 50 percent a year, and they want to take the secret sauce that they already have in several locations and expand it to new ones. And to do that, we need talent. And we think that's just a fundamentally different value proposition to come to someone and say, look, instead of liquidity, and we can certainly offer you that if that's what you're interested in, come be part of a team that's building things with us. And so that's really the balance that I'm talking about. It's what do you want out of the rest of your career? Do you want to de-risk the rest of your career or do you want to build something for the next 10 or 20 years? It also plays into how many years do people have left?
0: Yeah. How is your model then different than, say, the notion of what the industry refers to as a tuck-in? Meaning whether it be Focus Financial or a firm under the Dynasty Financial Partners umbrella or Hightower any such thing where there's an existing firm and the opportunity for either a breakaway advisor – or an independent firm, another RIA, to merge into or tuck into a larger RIA firm. Isn't that also a cultural play?
1: Yeah, in a sense. It's always challenging in the industry because you have a lot of different models. You have service providers. You have people who are providing platforms for technology and investments. When a firm joins EP, MAI, or Forbes, They are typically opening a new location within which we operate. So they're becoming part of that team, that EP, MAI, or Forbes team, and they're doing business in that way. They are using the leverage of the operating scale that our firms have built up. Getting to know this industry over the course of an 18-year career in it, we feel like we've been very fortunate in that we were able to pick three firms that are extremely well-run, that already knew what they were doing pretty well and frankly only took our investment because they recognized that they wanted more support on this M&A piece. They had great standalone businesses, but what they wanted is more help just finding the right folks in the industry, building partnerships. They recognized that they could simply grow faster and accomplish more if they folded acquisitions into their existing strategy. So I think that identifying culturally similar people, I'm happy to go through a quick test of who our three firms are and the sorts of things they look for, but we see it as quite different than some of the other models that are out there.
0: Got it. And I do, I will want to talk with you a little bit or have you talk a little bit about why the three firms that are part of this. But before we get there, you mentioned your two partners. So tell us a little bit about the background of your two partners and what your role is at Wealth Partners Group.
1: Sure. So my two partners are John Copeland and Sean Bresnan. John Copeland was running AMG Wealth Partners, and I joined him when I left Focus. And Sean Bresnan came to AMG Wealth Partners shortly after I joined. And I would say the three of us have worked together for a number of years now. I think this is our maybe fifth or sixth year working together. So in terms of how we divide up the work, at the end of the day, we support our firms in a number of ways, but much of our work is that of an M&A team. We help our partners, John, Sean, and I collectively help our partners identify prospective acquisitions that might make sense, get to know them, evaluate if there's a fit, negotiate and structure the deals, do the due diligence, and help support them on making sure these firms can be integrated into what EP, MAI, and FFT are doing. Always one of the least popular topics, but in our minds, one of the most important in in terms of ensuring long-term success. So while there's some specific division of labor, I've spent a lot of time in my career building out acquisition pipelines specifically. John spends more time running the group, which is based in Florida. Sean spends more time with our finances and managing creditors and things like that. Ultimately, we are a partnership and we share all the responsibilities.
0: Got it. So I would love to hear from you a little bit about in a universe of RIA firms and growing every day, there are many well-run firms and many, many RIA firms that would like more support on the M&A front. In fact, we always say just about every firm in the RIA space fancies themselves a buyer. So what was it in particular about the three firms you've chosen to invest in that made you pick them over others? Was it size? Was it location? Was it knowing the principles? Was it a combination of a hundred other things?
1: Sure. So it's a great question, Mindy. And you know, I just chuckled because for years I went around on the, the conference circuit, as many do, and I would give these panels on m a and I just have these fond memories of walking into a room with 80 or 90 people and you say, okay, who here is considering selling their practice and there were no hands? Who here is considering buying a practice? And 90 hands go up into the air and, you know, you have to shake your head a little bit. Yeah, I would follow it up with questions like, who has earmarked 3 to $4 million of capital for their first acquisition? Whose firm is capable of taking 200 households and 600 accounts and rolling them onto their reporting and investment system over the course of two weeks? And the hands start dropping pretty quickly. So I think there are a lot of folks who have aspirations to make acquisitions, but when you start to delve into what's really required, I think there are fewer practically are able to be acquirers than hope to be in terms of how we pick the firms. I mean, I was fortunate to have a seat at AMG Wealth Partners where we really got to know a lot of the top 40 or 50 firms in the country and were able to evaluate what they were doing and what they did well and, and how they operated. And our view was when you start looking for firms who built a really scalable business, and this is crucial, have made investments in their personnel and infrastructure. A lot of RIAs, for a variety of reasons, run very nice, profitable businesses, but without really investing in a professional management team, a departmental organization structure with operations and compliance and investments and finance, you know, run like a real business, there's simply a ceiling on where you will be able to get to. So, With our firms, we found a few things. One, they had invested heavily in their people and systems, so they had capacity to be larger than they were. And we found that we had management teams that we could really bet on and that we said, okay, if we're going to be doing this for the long term, which has always been our plan, then we think we have people on the other side of the table who are going to be right there with us doing this for the next 10 years. And finally, and certainly not least in terms of importance, they looked at what, at our collective track record and what we're doing and said, okay, I think this group can really help me build a bigger, stronger firm than we can do just doing what we're doing today very successfully. We can expand that and, and create something much larger together. So I think that's how we got there.
0: Yeah, so on that note, my follow up question was actually going to be just that. Okay, so it sounds like the three firms you chose to bet on were the right firms. And uh, we agree with you 100% that there's a, an enormous list of aspirational buyers. And that list gets culled down very quickly when you begin to really look at how many firms are actually a really MA ready or MA desirable, if you will, uh, meaning they're a desirable purchaser for a seller. But with the ever-expanding number of options there are for investors in this space, what was it specifically other than liking and believing in the track record of you and your two partners that made the three firms choose Wealth Partners Group, which was a brand new entity over a firm like Focus or over a firm like High Tower or United Capital or other investors in the space?
1: Yeah, and again, there are a lot of different models out there, and there are many, many folks who are willing to waive a check if it's firms like EP or MAI or Forbes. What I would say is when John, Sean, and I built Wealth Partners, one of the key principles that we built it around was we think there's an opportunity to build a very large, very successful group of firms in the RIA space. In order to do that, though, you need to have a long-term perspective. What we have seen is that so much of the money that wants to come into this space wants a great asset, and we certainly thought we'd identified that, but it wants it for the purposes of a trade. And what I mean by that is that they want to be a partner for three to four years and do a bunch of deals together, but then flip the company to somebody else and go off and do the next thing. And we're operators. We understand that it's really hard to be in the mode where you're building a business and making investments in that business and stop making investments all of a sudden and, and put yourself for sale for a year and then be sitting down and there's a whole group of new people across the table. That's very challenging. So when we built Wealth Partners, rather than going to traditional Institutional private equity, we raised our money from individual investors, and the nature of our deal is such that our individual investors have agreed that our money is for long-term purposes, and so we're able to deploy our capital with a 10-year time frame. and I think that's an awful lot of money in the industry. I don't think there was a lot that was offering a you know minority non-control investment with a long-term, we'll-build-it-with-you perspective. So I think if you talk to our partners, just the nature of the way we sourced our capital was an important differentiator.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that absolutely does make it unique, and I'm glad that you just shared that. Plus, my experience, too, is that while certain boxes absolutely need to be checked in terms of what a seller is looking for and what a buyer is looking for and so it needs to make financial sense it needs to make cultural sense it needs to make geographic sense it needs to make client service sense all of that in the end once those boxes are checked doing a deal comes down to sort of gut instinct who do i like who do i believe that is I can really work with who's going to be a good partner for me. And I think what you're saying is these guys had a front seat to your track records, liked what you had to say, liked who you were, believed that you were going to be able to add some alpha. And ultimately, that's probably what drove the decision.
1: I'm sure if you asked them, that would help. And I would say, just to sort of restate back to you what you just said, I don't think it's enough anymore in the RIA industry, which is really popular. These days, there are a lot of folks who have recognized that these are businesses that can produce high quality earnings, and it's become very attractive for, for a broad section of both private equity investors and strategic investors. I don't think you can just show up and wave a check and get things done. So I think, in addition to checking boxes, I think our firms also ask the question how is it that you're going to help me? become one of the top 5 firms in the country. And I think we are able to answer that by having deep native expertise and a track record in industry M&A in managing strategic acquisition programs in RIA firms. So, I think that and the nature of the capital and the willingness to partner for a decade long, let's build it together was ultimately the package that persuaded them.
0: Is the plan, Rich, for you to invest in any other RIAs besides the three initial firms, EPMAI and Forbes?
1: Yeah, it's a fair question, and it's one we get a lot. We would tell you that working with our three partners is keeping us plenty busy. We're certainly not having the experience that we're sitting around on our thumbs with a, a, a lot of free time. But we have no current plans to expand our group of three partners. I mean, you never rule it out over a long enough time period, but we see so much opportunity right now in just doing what we're doing with our firms today that we just don't see any need to go searching for a potential force. And I would also tell you that finding firms of the type we were looking for <laughs> is itself n- not an easy exercise.
0: Yeah, which is actually in and of itself funny. Because there are many multi-billion dollar firms, and I don't mean to say thousands, but there are certainly a good number of multi-billion dollar firms that all would have interest in more support or upping the m and game, and that would think of themselves as being well-run. But essentially what you're saying, as you looked at the universe of multi-billion dollar firms that needed to be not only well-run, but really think like a business and be scalable and have made investments in personnel and infrastructure and the lake and had capacity, that number gets much, much smaller pretty quickly.
1: Much, much smaller. So if you use, you know, just ballpark industry numbers, there's no need to be too precise here. But if you say, you know, call it 500 firms over 2 billion in the country, we would say the universe of those that are truly investable by our standards is nowhere near 500. Maybe it's 20, but it's certainly not 500.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And then not all of those 20... would have an interest in selling a portion of equity. And that's actually where I'd like to go to next. I will want to take a step back and just talk about perspectives on the industry in general, because a lot of our listening audience are prospective breakaways, meaning advisors that are still sitting at brokerage firms as employees, evaluating independence, and thinking about how to build a firm with the end in mind. So while they may be years away from thinking about selling, they do want to make sure that they're building a firm the right way if, in fact, they go independent. So we'll get to that. But tell me a little bit, if you would, one, about the, you mentioned that, you know, adding value beyond just M&A. So beyond targeting and identifying and evaluating, really evaluating acquisition targets, what other value do you and your two partners or wealth partners group bring both to the Three firms you've invested in, and to the tuck ins or the smaller firms you've acquired? I think
1: all three of us have been in this industry a long time. And I think we can bring to a number of aspects of this business investors' perspective. From my own field of expertise, you know, having watched firms grow from 2 billion to 15 billion while under the Focus umbrella. I have seen how that plays out in terms of when do you need to make the investments in staffing? When do you need to get the next round of technology upgrades? When do you need to evaluate your compensation structure? How do you need to look at your cap table? And I would say Sean and John have a similar ability to provide some insight on just how these firms are structured. And I wouldn't say we're the only ones in the industry that can do that, but as you think about someone who's going to be working hand-in-hand with you on building this business over a 10-year time frame, it is not the case that they only pick up the phone and call us when we're talking about an acquisition. Inevitably, we're carefully thinking together, you know, how do we make sure that we're paying our people the right way, that everyone's incentivized, do we have the right management structure? And by the way, these, these issues are all more acute when your firm's growing at fifty percent a year and you're opening three or four new offices every year. We've had just to you know, pick an example, the first EP Wealth Advisors sort of all hands meeting that we went to in twenty seven was sixty people. The one that we did last year was ninety and I see in January, and the ones that's coming up in January of 2020 will probably be around 150. Wow. And that presents some management challenges. And we think as we work very, very carefully with Derek, Brian and Patrick, the the founders and manager of the CEO of EP, we think we can hopefully help with some of the ways they can keep that management structure up to date as, as the firm grows as rapidly as it has.
0: And we haven't talked about it yet and we should. Tell us a little bit about EP, MAI and Forbes in terms of how big they are in terms of ass- assets under management, their locations and the kind of clients they service.
1: Sure. We'll start with the one I just referenced. So EP Wealth Advisors is plus or minus 6 billion today. They serve clients mostly from 1 to 10 million. And they really pride themselves on deep uh, planning, you know, doing everything from real estate analysis, insurance analysis, helping people figure out Medicaid and Medicare. So they're a deep, comprehensive planning firm. EP was started by two childhood buddies, um, Brian Parker and Derek Holman, who, as as they love to say, in 2011, fired themselves from full-time management and are still full-time advisors and brought in Patrick Gostigian, who was running operations for Nuveen, who's now acting as their CEO. So that's a thumbnail on EP. MAI Capital Management, on the other hand, is run by Rick Bunicor. That's about $6.5 billion today. MAI has an interesting story. It, the MAI business came out of IMG, the talent agency. So it still has a rich legacy business in serving sports stars, which it has just relaunched and is doing some really interesting things with. And so they have a number of clients from the NFL and pro golfers and NBA players and so forth. They also, of course, serve both high net worth, one to 10, and ultra high net worth clients. MAI also has a family office branch under its umbrella, family office division, I should say, under its umbrella. I neglected to mention EP is based in Los Angeles. MAI is based in Cleveland. And lastly, Forbes Family Trust, which is about $5 billion, really serves the ultra high net worth. So Forbes typically targets clients who are north of $50 million in assets and has really deep expertise in alternatives, hedge funds, private equity, very sophisticated products uh, that are deployed as part of a portfolio by ultra-high net worth investors. And Forbes is based in New York and Philadelphia.
0: Got it. And how many deals have you done on behalf of those three firms? Meaning, how many firms have you acquired on each of those three firms' behalf since inception?
1: So we collectively formally started Wealth Partners in June of 2017. We did our first deal in February of 2018. So it took us a few minutes to get started there. But since then, the pace has has certainly picked up. And between our partners, as of today, we have closed 12 acquisitions.
0: Wow. That's extraordinary, and congratulations. So let me ask you what I think is a real threshold question. We play in this space. We talk to an awful lot of principals of independent firms that struggle with the $64,000, $64 million question, which is, why would I want to give up any sort of control in the form of equity, I went independent to gain or to have total control. And the thought of giving up equity or giving up some control is anathema to me. So what do you think are the reasons that the 12 firms that have chosen to do deals with your three bigger firms, and of course, the principles of EP and MAI and Forbes. What was it do you think they were looking to solve for that made them willing to sell equity at whatever point they were at in their business lives?
1: It's a good question. And I'm mindful, Mindy, of course, that a number of members of the audience are thinking of of breaking away and setting up their own firm. So the idea of doing that and then giving up control at the moment might might seem crazy, the answer would be you have to believe by becoming part of that larger entity that you are in a better place, both in the sense that the expected growth of your business and your team will be greater, that the economic opportunities, both compensation and capital, will be greater. And I think that can happen in a number of different ways. So one of the things about running your own business that it takes a lot of time, and even for those folks working in a warehouse today who are very entrepreneurial, operating an RIA business, even a you know three, four, five hundred million dollar one, the CEO principal is responsible for a lot of things, and those things take time, and that might be everything from pricing your E and O insurance to dealing with a particular technology choice or a, an HR problem. So while we can't make those things completely go away, when you're joining a firm the size of EP or MAI or Forbes, they do have the staff and infrastructure just to handle it in a way that makes it easier. So one of the first things that we can do is we can give people back some time. But beyond that, all three of our firms are very robust organic growers, and we feel like we have the ability to plug folks into our channels To help them, if their goal is to, if they want liquidity, that's fine. We can offer great service for their clients. But if they're looking to grow with us, then we have pretty good organic growth machines. And in addition, um, you know, can find tuck-ins that help them grow their practice in their own right. So we find some combination of those reasons ends up being pretty compelling to the folks who join EP or MAI or Forbes. And I would say if you raised it up a level and said, why did those three join? I think the calculus was pretty simple. They felt like in partnership with Wealth Partners, they could get to a better place faster than they could on their own. And I think maybe informing both of those levels is just a sense that as money starts to come into the industry, as we start to see the first inklings of consolidation, as we start to see a few RIAs get bigger and have more capabilities, there is a sense that the competition is intensifying. Not that any RIA that's reasonably well-run is going to go away. I don't think that happens. But I think the competition for the next client is is likely to get a little more rigorous.
0: I agree with you 100%. But I think it's worth noting that not every RIA firm or not Every principal of an RAA firm has the goal of growth or maximizing enterprise value. So it's worth noting, first of all, that there are many folks that chose to go independent because they wanted to build a lifestyle practice. The goal isn't to maximize enterprise value or to grow by 50% per year, yeah. but rather to break away from the control or the bureaucracy of being an employee and very, very comfortable with having control and ownership of whether that be a $500 million firm, a $100 million firm, or a billion-dollar firm. So not everyone has the goal of growing that large. Secondly, I think it's worth noting that the onus is really on the buyer – or the firms that are going to bid for a seller to be able to articulate the value proposition to really connect the dots and paint the picture clearly and tangibly that yes, it means selling equity and nobody would do that gratuitously, but you would only do it if you really believed that we as a buyer could add real value, could help you, as you say, to get there better, faster, more gracefully than you might on your own. And that goes back to what you and I said initially, that while there may be many multi-billion dollar firms, the list gets very small very quickly of the number of firms that are really able to be good buyers or ready to be buyers. And I think that speaks to why not every seller is a seller or not every RAA firm is yep. a seller and certainly not every RAA firm is a buyer.
1: I emphatically agree with both. I mean, I think the example that probably proves the rule best is I think what we see is, in my experience personally, RIA principals who sell to banks aren't happy. The things that make you a good advisor, independent advisor often make you not so good a bank employee. Even if banks pay more, they typically don't get the advisors they're bidding on because there isn't that perception of value or worse. There's a perception of negative value, so you have to pay an awful lot more to bring people in that situation in a competitive world for good practices. And of course, there's a lot more competition for the $1 billion firm than there is for the $100 million one. Again, it's not just enough to show up with a check, even if the check is a bit bigger than the next guy's. You have to provide a good place to work with real opportunities and some place that people are going to enjoy. Because as you know, Mindy, the RIA business does have the potential to be a wonderful lifestyle business. And you can't you have to be able to provide people a team culture and an operating system which is a pleasure to be around and in every day. And that's easier said than done, especially if you're trying to maintain a rapid growth rate.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. So you mentioned the notion of bank as acquirer. So let me ask you a question about the different types of acquirers. We both agree that as the RIA industry has become more of a destination, more mainstream, independence becomes more of a valid choice for wirehouse advisors and the like. There is equally more capital or more money looking to come into the space. So as I look at it, the types of investors or buyers for these RIA practices are private equity-backed RIA firms, so a firm that themselves has either sold all or a portion of capital to a private equity firm, a larger Mm -hmm. RIA that is backed by some other pool of capital. It could be some clients have invested, it could be family office investment, it could just be their own personal capital, whatever it is an aggregator, if you will, a firm like Focus Financial or United Capital Partners, which is now owned by Goldman Sachs, AMG, and the like, a bank, which you just mentioned, a regional brokerage firm. We've read stories where firms like Stiefel Nicholas or RBC are playing in the acquisition game. So could you just walk our listeners through how you think about someone would think about who the best category of buyer should be if and when it's time to think about it?
1: Before you even get to the category of buyer, you have to ask the hardest question for any seller, whether they're selling their business or their house. What do you want? Because the answer to that question is going to determine your buying universe. Do you want the maximum amount of liquidity in the shortest amount of time? I'll often get that answer half-jokingly from sellers, and you say, really? You don't care what happens to your clients? You don't care what happens to your staff? You just want to check, and you're out of here, and everybody can fend for themselves? Every once in a while, someone says, yeah, that's exactly it, but those folks aren't for us. And most advisors that I work with or want to choose to work with will say, look, no, of course, I care deeply about my clients. I want to make sure they're in a great spot, and I care about my staff and I want to know my staff is in a good place and taken care of, and this is what I want for a business, and I have liquidity requirements for myself or alternatively. Liquidity is great, but I want a seat in which I can work and really grow something in Phoenix or Cincinnati, whatever it is, over the next 10 years. Now we're in a different answer. Does that, if you're sitting at a seat in a local brokerage firm, are you best positioned to grow? Maybe. If you have a buyer and you know the whole entity is going to be sold in three years or four years, is that the best place for you to build a 10-year career? I mean, look, maybe if you get some equity, you might get some value out of that capital transaction. But look, it borders on the cliche, but I would always start, if you're going to try and define your buying universe, figure out what's important to you. What are the things that under all circumstances you absolutely require? And if it's great home for clients and I want all my staff members to stick around, well, okay, let's just stick on that one for a minute. If you want all your staff members to stick around and you sell to an RAA backed with institutional money, they may be looking for synergies in the shorter term, which doesn't bode well for your staff. So you've got to be a little bit careful there. So you would want to go into that conversation knowing you'd have to put protections in place. So is the alignment right? So these are the sort of things I look at. I don't want to decline to to walk through each of the categories because I think you did a pretty good job of categorizing the buying universe. But as a seller, if you don't know exactly what you want in the deal, then the process is going to be very, very challenging.
0: Well, let's back up the train a minute to the notion, I used the term before, people should build a firm with the end in mind. So I'd love to know what you think about that. So if you think about, we're talking now to an advisor that is sitting at the legs of a traditional brokerage firm as an employee and evaluating the notion of going independent for the first time and building a firm. So number one, how do you think, or what advice would you give to those folks about what a firm that is built the right way with the end in mind, what are the things they do when they're building that can really help them to maximize enterprise value and build a firm that a wealth partners group someday might have interest in investing in?
1: Sure. Just at a very high level to start, I would say the thing that has the greatest value in the wealth management industry is your relationship with clients. So how that's defined and characterized is going to tell me tons about your firm, especially if you're coming out of a brokerage. So if you went and talked to your clients today and they said, what I really value is John or Jane's advice to me, their counsel, they look after my money, I trust them, that's terrific. You're doing a great job. Eventually, if you so choose, you'd have the opportunity to take that business out and that's going to fit really well in the RIA world. If on the other hand... Your clients say, I really value the, whatever it is, IPO and secondary opportunities. I want to discuss deal ideas with this person, or I think it's really important that they work at such and such a firm as that business card has value. Those are things where you start to wonder, you might be a great employee sitting in your seat, but you're probably not building the kind of franchise value, that kind of relationship capital that's really going to drive an RIA's value over time. There are also just some technical aspects to this. The RIA world is, in general, moving away from transactional business of any kind. And it's a little bit different in the world of brokerage, but things like variable annuities are considered transactional here, even though they generate trails. They're they're products, and it's a product sale, and so it's not viewed as a true fee relationship. So we would encourage you to as it's known, do some cleaning of your book. If you've been at a place for 10 years, <laughs> things and choices accumulate just as they do in, in your garage. And you've got to look through that and, and try and clean it up. And if you have legacy A shares or C shares or variable annuities or whatever those things are, those don't play great in the independent space. So it makes sense to start trying to get all your relationships into that more fee-based form.
0: And how about the kind of hires you should make? You mentioned professionally managed firms. Should a new RIA firm think about the expenditure of hiring a COO or a professional CEO out of the gate? It depends on their size.
1: And obviously, as always, assets are not always a, a clean proxy for revenue and size of the business. The inflection points we've typically talked about in the industry are 300 million, a billion and three billion dollars. Under 300 million, it's kind of anything goes. Between 300 million and a billion, it starts to look more like a team. You typically see teams of six to eight people. You often have a couple of ops folks, a couple of advisors, maybe a professional investment person, and the principal or principals. If you look in that cohort of the industry, I would say the next hire typically is the COO, and sometimes that COO is the CEO or the president or something like that as well, but the point is that COO is typically your first non-client-facing executive-level person in the business, making sure that all the trains run on time. After that, it depends a lot on your business model. Do you need more investment people? How do you manage money? Compliance, if you're a billion five and you don't have a compliance officer, that's a red flag. I'd be a little worried about that. Why not? Do you not think it's important? Are you really outsourcing one of the most important ways we de-risk these businesses? So it's hard to give you a really clear answer because every firm is a little different in how its org chart is, is set up. But I would say those are almost always the first two.
0: Yeah, no, no. I actually think that that was incredibly helpful. And to back up the train, I guess, even a little further, what are your thoughts about the benefits to clients of their advisor being independent versus an employee of a brokerage firm?
1: I mean, the old favorites are just the conflicts of interest. I mean, look, at the end of the day, brokerage firms in their current incarnation are product sales organizations. And for every product your advisor sells, they get paid at a different rate. And so they have a tremendous incentive to sell you one product over another product every day. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, shouldn't you just be making the best choice for your client? I mean, if you think it's appropriate for the client to be in index funds, should you not get paid much for that? That just doesn't seem like a great setup. I would also say in terms of the brokerage firms, with RIAs, it's pretty clear what the fees are. It's fairly transparent. In brokerage firms, the, the product fees can be embedded in you know, very complex language and they're in prospectuses and, and just very hard to find. Whereas in the RIA world, that information is much nearer to the surface. So I think just those two reasons, the conflicts of interest, and the the transparency or lack thereof are pretty tough.
0: There are probably a hundred other questions I could ask you, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But I do want to ask you something important. As we mentioned, it's an incredibly hot M&A market right now. But for someone who is launching an RIA firm in the near term, what they're likely looking at is, is a runway of, say, five to 10 years before they think about selling. So do you expect that momentum to continue? And I guess as an ancillary to that, what do you think will happen to firm valuations? How do you see that changing?
1: I wish I knew. I think right now there is a lot of demand and not a lot of supply. Now, people hear that and say, well, that's crazy. There are 14,000 RIA firms. What are you talking about? Well, yes, but 500 or so over 2 billion. And most of the capital is chasing firms on the larger end of the spectrum. And one of the things that I think is driving up prices is there are so few firms who have achieved scale, who still have organic growth, and they have managers with a long-term horizon, those are just very, very scarce assets. And therefore it drives up the price. I don't see on the immediate horizon, a ton of new assets fitting that profile appearing. So therefore it's hard for me to envision multiples for the large RIA segment going down in the medium term. So this seems like something that's going to be here for a while. Things could affect that. A down market cycle could put some some downward pressure on multiples. But I think to get back to your earlier question, Mindy, because it's a good one, if I was starting an RIA today, I would say forget about the and I had a ten year timeline. Let's not worry about the ultimate capital value. Let's not spend too much time on that today. Instead, and this is, you know, really our philosophy, instead of working a trade angle and trying to maximize the net income in this particular year and find a buyer, make the investments you need to make over a period of years, get a ton of talented people in the door and really start to build something. And if that means your margin is a little bit lower in the near term, and if that means your distributions and your take-home pay is a little bit lower because you're reinvesting that back into the business, if you're in this for 10 years, I would argue it's worth it. The only reason that EP Forbes and MAI are where they are today is because the management teams were not maximizing what they took out from the business. They were putting back into it at least half of the margin or available margin every year, and that's how they built great teams and franchises. So if you're a builder, be a builder. Don't spend too much time worrying about the sorts of things you might worry about if you said, I really want to sell this business in six months.
0: Yeah, and I think you're also saying don't fret about the things that you really have no control over, like no. trying to prognosticate what the market's going to do yeah. or what the MA market will look like 10 years from now. I do want to ask you one last question just for clarity. You mentioned that what's driving the MA market up is that there's a scarcity of these well-run multi-billion dollar firms with scale. But what of the sellers, what of the prospective breakaway advisor that manages 500 million or a billion and is going independent and isn't looking at 6 billion in the near term or 5 billion in the near Mm -hmm. term, but, as you see it now, and I realize no one has a crystal ball, but what do you think the market looks like as those firms begin to think about building a firm for maximum enterprise value? What do you think the opportunity set looks like for a firm of that size as we look out into the future?
1: So let's say you come out with $500 million or whatever it is. That is more than enough to plant your feet and operate a, a solid franchise. And with some confidence, a medium-term estimate, once we're talking about 10 years, I think all bets are off. But I think one way to look at it is over a 10-year period, you will almost certainly live through a down cycle, and it will probably, as it has in the past, come back up. So that's fine. There are opportunities for entrepreneurial people in down cycles. When everybody else is scared and running away, that's your moment to be aggressive, When everyone else is fearful, be a little greedy. So if you're a builder, you look at that down cycle and you should be excited. There are going to be opportunities for you that just aren't there in a long-term bull market with uh, valuations that are at time frosty. So I would say set up your franchise, have a 10-year time frame, and try over that 10 years to build it into a much larger franchise, whatever that number might be.
0: Yeah, and just do it the right way. Continue to do the next right thing based upon your own goals and vision, and you'll worry about the rest later.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's not more complicated than that. The wonderful thing for the the true breakaway who has a 10-year timeline is you don't really need to worry about much in the industry other than, you know, is my offer to clients consistently competitive? How am I finding the next one? And am I doing a great job for the ones I have?
0: I think that's a wonderful note to end upon because I think in the end, a lot of what we're talking about is goals and visions and things that we can't control necessarily. But the one thing that an advisor can control more than anything and that he should control more than anything is the client service experience. And then as long as you continue to really focus on that and make it the best that you can be, that's a home run and probably the best recipe for career success.
1: You should be absolutely fine. And the converse is also true.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that too. Rich, thank you enough. We've (laughs) taken up enough of your time. This is really, really insightful and enlightening. And I think our listeners will love it. And I hope we can continue the dialogue.
1: Likewise, Minnie. It is always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And look forward to talking soon.
0: Rich's insights around how a buyer and seller can differentiate themselves are pivotal in a hot and crowded M&A market. While well-run, uber-successful, independent firms may have their pick of the litter when ready to sell, there are opportunities for firms at all levels. So it's critical to answer the threshold questions that Rich shared before wading into the M&A waters. No doubt, it's an exciting time to be an independent business owner, whether you're just thinking of launching a firm or have been an entrepreneur for decades. In our next episode, I welcome a guest who needs little introduction, Josh Brown. While his day job is serving as the CEO of billion-dollar-plus RIA firm Ritholtz Wealth Management, many know him from his appearances on CNBC and other media outlets, his website, The Reform Broker, his books, videos, social media, and more. Needless to say, Josh has a ubiquitous presence in the wealth management space. I expect it will be a spirited and fun conversation, and I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.